Hey guys, and welcome to the Family Business in Dava podcast. We are the voice of African family business, promoting generational wealth and generational legacies. And my name is Susan Tendi. And I am Nikia Amani. And we're going to be taking you through the journey of African family business. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Beyond COVID-19 webinar series. Today, we're joined by Christian Stewart from Hong Kong, speaking on family trusts and family harmony. May I ask that um, all the participants place your mics on mute and videos off, please, um, to minimize any disruption. So over to you, Christian. Thank you very much, Nikkei and Cece, for inviting me to talk. And thank you very much for your um, COVID crisis conference, um, which I watched some of the webinars on and which were really lots of top quality speakers and and great content. Um, So I'm grateful for that and grateful to have a chance to be presenting to you here tonight. Um, I'm a family business advisor from Hong Kong and... um, I started life as a trust lawyer in Australia, moved to Hong Kong about 25 years ago, and I did many of the, if you look at my presentation tonight, I, when I was a young trust lawyer, I used to do everything wrong. I didn't do any of the things that I said you should do or that I'm gonna say that you should do tonight. And um, I'm gonna share screen in a moment. I'm gonna talk about this topic of the question of family harmony and family trusts. Um, So in Hong Kong, we've had a long history of the use of family trusts. um, And we've had examples where family trusts have been set up for like 25 odd years and everything has worked really, really well. But then when the, you know, the patriarch who set up the trust initially died, it's not uncommon to see that you're starting to have family disputes. So in Hong Kong, people are saying, well, what's, what's happening? You know, when we set up family trusts, we thought that the family trust is going to help us to um, prevent family disputes. You know, we thought the family trust is going to help us to continue the ownership of our family business. Um, but why is it that a family trust is not being successful in preserving family harmony? That's the topic I'm going to explore tonight. I'm going to share screen. I've got a presentation. And I think I'm going to move my, try and move the sidebar out of the way. So um, this is the start of my presentation. I'll go for about um, uh, a little bit over 30 minutes, I think. So this is the question. Can a family trust preserve family harmony? And... Briefly, so we start off with what is a trust? And you know, a trust is a, is a relationship. It's a legal relationship between trustees and beneficiaries. Um, but then it's also a mechanism for separating uh, voting control over assets from beneficial enjoyment. It's a, it's a tool for consolidating decision-making. And if you have a single trust, then what you're talking about is 
pooled beneficial ownership. Um, another way to think about a trust is that a trust is also a kind of governance structure. Like when you set up a trust, you think about what are the different governance elements of that trust. And when you start thinking that or realizing that a trust is also a governance structure, it leads you to thinking about, okay, well, shouldn't we be clear on what's the mission or the purpose of our trust? So maybe there can be a mission or purpose which goes beyond, you know, just holding the shares in the family business or protecting the family financial assets. And what I'm going to encourage you to think about is that the mission or purpose of your family trusts could be to preserve family harmony and it could be to invest in and grow the human capital, which means to help your family members, the beneficiaries, to flourish. And I'll say more about that later. Um, so the first, so I've got about 11 principles or recommendations to consider. Um, and it would be perfect if you could find a way to implement all 11 of these recommendations. Um, but life is never perfect. So if you can follow the 80-20 rule that you're off to a very good start. Um, the first re recommendation is make family harmony an enacted value, not just an espoused value. Um, so I've got to start off by talking about what is family harmony. And the first thing I want to say is that not all conflict is bad conflict. I'll come back to that point a little bit later on. A lot of families, they say, or they ask themselves the question and they say, what is the opposite of conflict? And they say, well, it's harmony. But actually, that's not true. The opposite of conflict is things like apathy. So I'll come back to that conflict point. So if you want to preserve family harmony, then um, getting together socially as a family is helpful, but it's not sufficient. So family getting together on a regular basis doesn't, is not really enough if you're aiming to preserve family harmony in you know, a complex situation, which is what you have when you've got co-ownership of joint, of, um, of family wealth. So to have family harmony, you need to have honest communication. That means you need family members who have the skill to have difficult conversations, you know, to put the fish on the table and talk about the challenging things without it becoming unproductive. You need family members who know how to build trust and to rebuild trust in relationships. You need a family that values and that encourages these concepts of differentiation and individuation. You know, that means a family that wants its family members to grow up and become separate, mature adults who can be successful in their own right. And you think about what's a healthy family, part of the thing, part of the um, characteristics of a healthy family is that it's one where you can balance together and apart and when you're all pulled together under a family trust, that's an example of everybody being together. And to have a healthy system, you want to encourage, you know, adult and, and young adult family members to go off and 
you know, have their own hero's journey and be successful and do things away from the family business. To have family harmony, you need family members who've like building up, they have practices, um, including mindfulness practices to help them to self-regulate. So when they get triggered, they need to know how to self-regulate. Um, I think family harmony and a successful family enterprise needs thinking about engagement of stakeholders and it needs emotional commitment. Emotional commitment is an element of family firm, family enterprise continuity. Right? So that's concepts around family harmony. And the basic point is that, or the question here is, so what will happen when you combine a family trust with a family system? And so I've just been talking about harmony where you have any family with jointly owned assets or any family which own a family business together, by achieving that family harmony is its own task, is it's a task by itself, which is important. So then you have a family system with its family dynamics and its culture, and you put a trust, which is a legal relationship on top of that family relationship. What you've just done is that you've increased complexity, right? So when you put a family system, which is kind of tied together and you put it into a trust context, you've increased the complexity of the system. So that means you need to work even harder than if there was no trust, if you want to maintain family harmony. So families need to be, and particularly families with family trusts, need to be more intentional about preserving family harmony, simply because of the complex complexity of the situation that they find themselves in. Um, so the lesson there again is make family harmony an enacted value, not just an espoused value. So that means you can't just say we value family harmony. You've got to say we value family harmony. And because of that, we are doing the following skills, practices, processes to build, maintain the harmony. Right. The second point is understanding this principle that culture eats structure for breakfast. So if you're a consultant, a corporate consultant, then you would have heard the phrase, I think it's a Peter Drucker one, that uh, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And you know, a really thoughtful man in the family wealth space is a guy called Matt Wesley. And he said in the family wealth space, you know, we have to understand that culture, family culture will eat our legal structures and our family constitutions, etc., our governance structures for breakfast. So, so every family has its own unique culture and you have to understand the culture of that family to work with it. So we've said trusts are an ownership structure, a governance structure, so they're an example of structure. You can't use trusts to bottle up family emotions. So when you start to work with a family or if you are leading a family or a member of a family, then the questions to be thinking about if the family's thinking about trust ownership or trust as a vehicle is, does this family have the capacity, you know, including the sophistication level, education level, to understand the structure that has been set up for us? Do we have the capacity to make this structure work for us? Um, 
I'll come back to that point. Does the family have the capacity to be pulled together? So this is a mindset um, point. It's the mindset is that you can't structure your way out of bad family dynamics. Right? I'll say a little bit more about this. I'll say, I'll, I'll talk about conflict from time to time. One way of thinking about levels of conflict in a family firm's is to think that there's three levels of conflict in family firms. There's issue conflict, process conflict, and relationship conflict. And relationship conflict is the deepest level. So if you have issue conflict, then it's a tension created by considering a decision with alternative options. Issue conflict is good and you want it to be encouraged. The thing there is just to make sure it's happening in the right forum. Um, Process conflict can happen because you've got ineffective or missing governance structures. So you can fix process conflict by investing in governance. You can also have process conflict because you have family members who lack personal skills, such as communication or negotiation skills, and you can learn your way or develop your way out of that process conflict. But the deepest level of conflict is relationship conflict which is an interpersonal or group relationship that disrupts functioning regardless of the issue. So this is talking about negative family dynamics, which always keep interrupting um, group processes. And you cannot use a trust to fix relationship conflict. If you have relationship conflict, you need people who can work with the, re work with the relationships, including people like coaches and family therapists. Um, the next point is make sure that you can see the whole elephant. Um, so I put the elephants up there because there's that story of the um, blind, five blind men, I think it is, standing around the elephant. You know, one is holding the tail, one is holding the ear, one the trunk, one is holding the leg. And when each one describes their experience, you know, their experience is only a part of the picture. They can't see the whole elephant. So setting up a trust is like that. And if you set up a family trust, and indeed, if you're talking about a governance system for a family or how you better govern a family business, you kind of need to see the whole elephant and you need advisors or an advisory process which will let you see the whole elephant. So how do you get a clear picture of the family? Well, the first point is if you're only talking to the matriarch or the patriarch or the wealth owner, the trust creator, normally they don't have a clear picture of the family. Uh, if you have a matriarch or patriarch in Hong Kong then they, and you ask them how their family is, they will say, we're good, we are harmonious, everybody gets along well together. And they can't see that the moment they're gone, the relationships change so they have they don't have the accurate picture of what the family is really like so if you're an advisor working with a family that's going to set up a trust then they should really have permission to go and talk to all of the adult stakeholders and try and find out what are the relationships like is there a history of working together do they have um, what are the conflicts in the family what are the things the family members can't talk about etc right so the advisor needs to walk around the whole elephant 
That's the, that's the minimum. Then the next piece is saying that um, typically trusts are designed in a conversation between the trust creator or set law and their technical advisors. And a lot of times they may design a structure and then the details of the structure, you know, like who will play what roles when the set law has passed away are often kept secret or how will the wealth be allocated? What's the distribution um, guidelines when the set law passes away? That will often be kept confidential. So like taking things to a next level of transparency, if you have adult um, children, adult beneficiaries, a best practice is to encourage your trust creators to hold a family meeting and say, this is what I'm thinking about, about the terms of the family trust. These are the people that I'm thinking will play different roles in the trust. And this is what I'm thinking about in terms of how distributions will be handled. They may also go on to say, it's probably useful to say this to say, you know, these are my values, which is why I've decided to do things this way, or these are the principles that I'm trying to achieve. And to give that level of transparency to the adult beneficiaries and then say, what do you see? What do you, what's your feedback? I'm giving you a voice. You don't make the decision, but I want to get the, your information so that I can incorporate your information, maybe take it away, talk to my advisors, and if necessary, make adjustments to this plan that we've come up with. So the ideal is giving adult family members a voice in the terms of the structure. Next thing is develop in, um, you know, always invest in developing collaborative skills. Maybe I'll do this quickly. Um, so again, you go back to the assumption, adult beneficiaries are collective beneficial owners. So the, whenever you have joint ownership, can they collaborate? Collaborate means the ability to share power together. I put here, respecting the role because we have to remember it's a role, a beneficiary role is largely a role about a voice. It's not a voting role. So collaboration doesn't mean letting the beneficiaries run the business or sit on the board. That's not what I'm saying. But adult beneficiaries and young adult beneficiaries need to learn how to work together. And you work, learn how to work together by having the experience of working together. So, you know, as a family, can you design opportunities for your rising generation to go out and do things jointly together? So it's the charitable giving together. It's the um, joint investment fund together. It's coming together to design the governance, you know, over, over a process of time and working with consultants and coaches who can coach them and develop them on those collaborative skills. So the question is, do you have time? So the first question is, can the family members collaborate? If the answer is yes, then it looks like you could put them into a trust together. If the answer is no, and you say, is there time to develop collaborative skills? Then, um, then you need that you need to commit to a process that is going to help them develop collaborative skills over time. 
um, and you need to work probably with coaches and, and family business consultants, etc. Um, if there is no time left um, and they can't collaborate, so you have adult beneficiaries, they're all over 50, they've never worked together in their lives, they've never been able to agree on it much together in their lives, you know, probably the answer is it's too late and try not to put them into a pooled trust structure together. The next, you know, principle number five is always hold regular family meetings. And again, this is assuming that you have adult beneficiaries, right? So the default position with a trust structure is that trusts can be used to deny people who are beneficiaries a voice, right? But where you have adult beneficiaries, beneficiaries need to have a forum. So giving them a voice leads to emotional and commitment and engagement. No voice leads to disengagement and disgruntled beneficiaries. So again, what we're talking about is you're giving them a voice on ownership level issues, right? So that's not a voice on management issues. It's not a voice, it's not a seat on the board, but it's about thinking about, okay, what's the right level of disclosure that we should be giving to somebody who has an interest in ownership? You know, you use those regular family meetings to educate about the business. Again, giving people a voice is not the same as giving people a vote. And sometimes, you know, beneficiaries, when they're learning to work together, it takes time for them to learn that. So you're, you're, you're sort of creating boundaries as you're working with a, with a group. And, you know, it's a balance between giving people engagement, giving people voice, but also making it clear that there is a boundary and that they don't have a vote. Right. One of the lessons from families in Hong Kong is that when the families already in conflict, you can't start holding family meetings. It's too late. So you have to create the family meeting or the, the beneficiaries forum long in advance of the need for it. Okay. Um, I have put um, a book up there, which I think is a great reference if you've come across the work of Nancy Klein before. Um, she has an, an earlier book called Time to Think. Um, both are great books. So the question I'm again still addressing is, is there a forum for the beneficiaries? So you can draft up some simple terms of reference for that forum in a charter. You could put it in a letter of wishes. Um, I don't personally think you need to put it in the trust document, but you know, that's an issue you work out with your advisors. Um, with the family businesses that I work with, I like to help them develop a table of decision-making authorities. So there you say, okay, what are all of the major decisions that need to be made? And for example, one decision is, um, you know, who decides on the dividend each year? So, there, so that's, a, that's an example of a major decision. And then you would say, um, okay, who makes that decision? And more importantly, who has a voice in that decision? So the make, you know, it might be some combination or somewhere between the CEO and the board, um, or maybe even with trustee approval. Um, and then the voice, you could say, well, the voice on this dividend policy, dividend declaration question is 
with the beneficiaries forum. The beneficiaries forum should at least have a voice on the annual dividend declaration. Um, so I put the Nancy Klein book there as a, as a great resource to look into great framework, great skill set for holding family meetings and like really deeply listening to each other. Okay. Right. The next principle, principle number six, is invest in trustee beneficiary education. So, so how the question here is how can you have a good relationship between a trustee and beneficiary? Um, given that's a very, very complicated, it is a complex legal relationship. And to have a good relationship, you need to, the parties involved in the relationship need to have a really good understanding of the roles involved, right? So beneficiaries need to be educated on what's the role of a trustee, what's the role of a settlor of a trust, the person who creates it, what's the role of the protector? of a trust. Um, and likewise, trustees, especially if they are not coming from a technical background, they will also need education on the parties, the roles and responsibilities of the parties to a trust. And um, likewise with protectors. And if you are, you know, hopefully following my advice and you're saying, you know, we want something to be achieved with our trust, which is we want our trust to have a mission or a purpose of hope, helping the family members, the beneficiaries to grow as independent adults, helping to have family harmony. So if you have these, you know, a special mission for your trust, then you also need to educate the advisors and the different parties who come involved, um, who are helping the family with that, achieving that mission. Um, so you use your family meetings for trustee beneficiary education. You create a curriculum. Part of the curriculum is that beneficiaries have responsibilities too. Um, basic responsibilities, including making sure they understand the structure themselves. They've read the terms of the structure. They understand the financial statements for the business, etc. They understand the table of decision-making authorities. Um, you can also, again, use those educational platforms to be updating on business performance, um, teaching how to interpret financial statements and education on their business governance. So a great starting point on the trustee beneficiary relationship is Jay Hughes' classic book, Family Wealth, Keeping It in the Family, which I've put a picture of there. Um, so when I first, the first time I've done this presentation, it was in Hong Kong for you know, a, sort of an audience in Hong Kong and in Hong Kong, we have this idea of talking about who are the elders or the family elders, trusted elders. And so I dug up a picture of Lao Tzu, who's the, um, you know, the writer, of, who's a Taoist um, and who's sort of an archetypal um, elder. So my seventh lesson is make the protectors of the trust the judicial branch of the system. Right. So... What does a protector do? It, it, you know, it varies significantly. It depends on the drafting of the trust. Um, you know, the core protector power is usually the ability to change trustees. You know, some trusts use the term appointor. Some have tr protectors and appointors. Um, I don't, you know, it does. I don't 
from a governance perspective, I don't think you know these variations make any difference. Um, but you set down the principle that you want your protectors to be the judicial branch of the governance system that the trust represents. So that includes, you know, they're the people who have to help mediate disputes between the beneficiaries and the trustees. And a key example of that is going to be beneficiaries who say, you know, why are the trustees asking us all these questions or why won't the trustee just agree to this distribution? And so they need to be somebody who can stand between the trustees and the beneficiaries and say, you know, the trustees have duties, responsibilities, the trustees are exercising those properly in a professional manner. Um, the things they're asking for are within their, within their rights and proper process and will help the integrity of the trust. Um, and also to mediate disputes amongst the beneficiaries. So who's the ideal protector? So from this thinking, um, an ideal protector is somebody who is objective, um, who's not a beneficiary. So that means ideally you're finding third parties who are not beneficiaries, not family members. Um, so I'd say my first, my first sort of preference is to avoid using a family member in that protector role. Um, and so I'd say, ideally, you want people who, have a, who are known to the family, know the beneficiaries, have a trusted relationship with the family, but they also know something about trust structures. Maybe they also know about the governance objectives of your, of your family and the family trust and your business. Um, if you have a committee of protectors, then that helps with succession. Again, one of the lessons in Hong Kong is avoid the possibility of deadlocks on that committee. Um, and I guess the approach I'm advocating is to say, you know, you have to think about and you have to design the role of the protector in a way which goes beyond the black letter language in your trust document. So normally I'm recommending that people have a charter which says, you know, this is the job description of the protector. This is the ideal kind of person that we want as the protector. Um, this is the mediation judicial branch role of the protector. Another good sort of rule of thumb with protectors is make it clear that they don't get involved in the administration of the trust unless the beneficiaries or the trustees say, hey, there's a problem. We need you to get involved just to fix this problem. Right. Number eight is, you know, make sure you have a way to prune the tree. So when you look at family business longevity, right, pruning the tree, which means consolidating ownership, is a proven pathway to business longevity. So pruning the tree helps family businesses preserve. Um, but then you have, so there's a paradox here. Trusts help to cons concentrate ownership. But beneficiaries of trusts, and I'm talking about discretionary trusts, beneficiaries have no interest that they can sell. So beneficiaries of trusts have no transfer rights typically. And if you don't have any transfer rights, then that leads to loss of emotional commitment and that means there's no way to let off steam 
There's no way to let somebody out if they're constantly in conflict. So, but emotional commitment is really, really important. Emotional commitment contributes to family harmony and it contributes to enterprise continuity. So I recommend, even if you have a single pooled discretionary trust, you need to work with your advisors, your technical advisors, to come up with some way to give adult beneficiaries the possibility of an exit process from a discretionary trust. And, you know, and by exit, that means to say, okay, we're going to give you an amount of money calculated in some way, um, you know, with, with deep, deep discounts and, you know, provisions about payment terms, etc. Um, but it's really critical. So the, the default thinking is that you set up a family trust, everybody's pulled together. There is no transfer rights. But what I'm suggesting and strongly advocating is that families should go back to their advisors and say, hey, um, we need to be more creative here. We do need exit rights. Can you come up with something for us? Um, so in case of conflict, exit rights gives the family more options. Um, like a simple way to think about exit rights is to think, should instead of having one single trust, maybe each branch of the family should have its own trust. Should we have branch trusts and then a buy-sell agreement amongst the different trustees? So pruning the tree, having an exit mechanism is something that I think is very necessary for families. Um, my next principle is when a trust owns a family business, um, use the three circle model, right? So what does the three circle model of family business tells us? It tells us that family businesses are a complex system, right? Your perspective depends on where you stand. There is uh, inherent tension in the system. You know, people in the ownership circle are going to have a different interest from the people in the management circle. There's always a conflict between ownership and management. It tells you each circle needs its own forum. Um, it tells you balancing the three circles is the goal, is important. And it tells you that you need to have healthy boundaries. So what happens when you have a trust that owns a family business? Well, the trust is a tool inserted into a complex system. And it's a tool for the ownership circle. So just because you have a tool in the ownership circle, it doesn't mean that you've done all the work that you need to do in the family circle, maybe in the management circle. Right? Um, trustees are at or balance. It, you know, adding a tool into the... Um, ownership circle doesn't address the question of the need for balance amongst the three circles. So, so again, trustees exercise ownership level legal rights, make the assumption that adult beneficiaries are the beneficial owners. I've talked about giving them a voice, but not a vote. And the bottom line is that if you're a trustee and you own a family business, you have to do everything the three circle model tells you to, you need to do. You need to ask, do we have the right policies in place to have a good boundary between family and business? Do we have an employment policy, for example? You have to ask, do we have the right policies in place to balance 
management and um, ownership. So do we have a dividend policy, for example? Do we have a board with outside directors who can be thinking about are all three circles being considered in decision-making? So trustees need to follow the three-circle model is my basic advice. Right? Um, so the point of this slide is just to say, if you have a trust that owns a family business, try to design balance into the system. Right? And this is, so this is a conceptual idea that I've put here. Right? It's something to think about. Um, one way of designing balance into the system if you think about who should we have as trustees, like I, one way is to say, well, we should make sure we have one trustee who's got management perspective, you know, one who's going to represent the beneficiaries, the sort of beneficial ownership perspective. You know, do we need somebody different to cover the family perspective? And should we have a neutral third party? So, of course, this same thinking happens at board level as well. So, so I have to think, do we need it at both the trustee level and the board level or, yeah. right. Number 10, plan to constructively manage conflict, right? So conflict is inevitable, but war is not, right? That's quoting Ian Marsh, um, author of this really great book called, um, If It's So Good to Talk, Why Is It So Hard? Um, Again, the three-circle model tells you conflict is inherent in a family business system. Right? One, of the, one of the frameworks about thinking about conflicts in family enterprises is this uh, book by Baumel and Tripp um, called Deconstructing Conflict. And one of their conflict triggers is perceptions of abuse of power. And so where you have a family trust, you have family members playing trustee roles or protector roles, it's very easy to get tripped up in perceptions of abuse of power, which will cause conflicts. Um, talked about different kinds of conflicts before. Um, the one that you really have to work hard on. So again, issue conflict, you welcome. Process conflict, you build and you teach skills to um, manage that. And um, relationship conflict is where you really need outside help you really need people who can work with family dynamics and you've got to invest in that and understand it takes time. Um, make fair process and decision-making, provide people with a voice, involve objective third parties in the structure, have family policies for predictable conflicts. And the key point that I wanted to make is that you've got to have a family conflict resolution policy. And then you can back up that family conflict resolution policy with a legally binding alternative dispute resolution agreement and you know typically these policies will say okay if there's a conflict then first of all the parties will have to work it out by themselves and if they can't then we'll get involved the family council or independent director to help mediate um, and if it gets really serious and that second step doesn't work then we'll go to it has to have a mediation with somebody experienced in dealing with family business disputes um, and, um, you know, then hopefully you can say, well, arbitration of disputes is the final way to resolve family disputes so that you keep it out of the public domain, et cetera. So, and I put 
I've put a list of resources here, so you can go back and have a look at the slide. You know, some of these are about you know managing your own reactions and your own thinking, and some of these are about being mindful. Um, I've also put up there forgive for good, which teaches people how to forgive, and learning how to talk. So I've put the Ian Marsh book. I've also put the Difficult Conversations book there. The final lesson, so this is coming to the end, is use the trust to invest in your family, human and intellectual capital. So the idea there is um, how can you use a trust so that especially young adults and adult family members will say, you know, my family really helped me more than just financially. My family really helped me to grow and become the person that I am today or, you know, help me on my life journey, help me to flourish. So um, how do you do that? Okay. You commit as a family and through the trust structure, you make this the mission or the purpose of the trust structure to invest in personal development and growth of family members. And if you do that, you foster independent, successful adults. You create family connection you create family members who are better able to make joint decisions, better able to participate in governance. And this investing in your family human capital reduces the chances of destructive conflict. How does it do that? Because if you help your human capital, your family members to grow, they increase in maturity and they're better able to avoid the pull of family dynamics. That's, that is a definition of growth. Um, I think I'm down to about my last slide. So I'll just finish off on this is, again, how can a trust help the beneficiaries to flourish? So make this the purpose of the trust. Think in terms of the trust involve human relationships. What kind of relationships do you want to have? Be intentional about that. Um, use the trust to focus on building strengths and beneficiaries. Help beneficiaries develop self-knowledge to know thyself. Cultivate gratitude like help beneficiaries to become mindful of their narratives about trusts and inherited wealth. Get the people who are making distribution decisions to understand the difference between a prevention-focused mindset and a promotion-focused mindset. Um, and last of all, I'd say, like, regularly measure, talk about how is our family doing? What's the state of our qualitative capitals? And the book on all of this is this book I've got a picture of their family trusts a guide. Um, just finally, um, who should you select as trustees? The key point here is that if you want to help beneficiaries to grow, if you want beneficiaries to flourish, then the key trustee function is the distribution function. And um, so you need trustees or you, trustees need advice from coaches and counsellors, you need authorization that beneficiaries can go and get their own coaches and counsellors and, you know, do assessments so that they could learn about themselves. The system, the advisors, maybe the trustees need to include not just technical advisors, but also qualitative advisors, again, those coaches and counsellors. Um, so thank you very much. I will stop there for questions and I'll stop my sharing. Thank you so much, Christian, for such an insightful
presentation about family trusts. I find that uh, when people think of trusts, most of the time they're thinking more of the processes and just the technicalities of putting a trust together. They forget the soft issues that you brought to the forefront um, through this whole presentation. So we have a few questions um, in our chat box and I encourage everyone who's on this webinar to also add your voice if you have any burning questions that you would like Christian to answer while we still have him. And the first question would be, in the situation where a trust where trust has be a trust has been broken down, trust has been broken down in a family, how can we rebuild that trust? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's a different that's obviously a different kind of trust. So trying to link that with what I've been talking about here is um, um, so I've been advocating you need to have a forum, right? A family forum. So you're, part of the work that you're doing in that family forum is trying to rebuild the trust, right? Um, one of the things I've said is that, and CC, you said this, is, you know, we need to stop, you know, we've got lots of advice about the technical issues, right? We need to start thinking about who's going to give us advice about the soft issues. So, and the soft issues are the hard issues. So, you know, the next really, you know, it's a practical kind of thing is um, you need consultants, therapists who come from that, you know, who have that right um, skill set to help with trust building. Um, I also talked about the importance of like building skills. Um, I've given some references there. So like one of my favorite ones is this active insight worksheet. So where there's a breakdown of trust, you know, maybe you've been triggered and when you get triggered, your perspective narrows. So you don't see your, you only see your one fixed story. So just helping people working through the active insight worksheet um, is, is, is part of the process for helping people to sort of step back and relax and say, oh, actually there is a bigger, there is a bigger perspective here. Teach, teach them how to do the difficult conversations framework and the difficult conversations framework teaches them, well, there's a, there's a, um, there's a contribution system. Maybe I'm contributing to the, the breakdown of trust as well. What's my contribution here? Um, I've mentioned um, Tara Brack, who's into awareness of what's going on in your own body. So again, like we often get very caught up in our heads and if we can get into our own body, give ourselves self-compassion, like we, we can tap into our unconscious, I think. Like maybe what we're fighting about is not really what we're fighting about, you know, so those mindfulness skills themselves. And then like very specifically around trust building in family businesses is, you know, a great process is, well, Learning to listen deeply, right? So learning to listen deeply is, um, you know, involves getting to the point where you can say, well, actually maybe my, my narrative, my story is not the whole truth. And the final tool is like the trust matrix tool, right? So trust is both context specific, 
right? So when you start talking about trust and working on trust, you've got to start saying, well, let's talk about the different contexts that we interact in. And, and there are different elements of trust, right? So you go through and you use this trust, trust matrix tool and you figure out very specifically what somebody actually means when they say there's a breakdown of trust. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then there's like the family therapy perspective, which, et cetera. So, yeah. We have a question here from Vinod. How can trusts help in reducing the inherent conflicts in between family systems in the three circle model? Well, I think they, yes. Um, so point number one is, again, recognizing that you have the three circle model. Point number two, recognizing that the trust itself doesn't do anything about those inherent conflicts. So trust, uh, point number three is, you know, if you're a trustee and your main asset is shares in a family business, then you have a duty to preserve that business. So you have a duty to resolve those inherent conflicts. I think somebody has to tell the trustees that they have those inherent conflicts, um, three circle conflicts. And then, as I said before, like you have, what do you do about making sure good boundaries between family and business, right? So usually that's have a family forum, put in place the right policies. That's the trustee's job to make sure that's being done. And I said before, like, what do you do about conflict of, you know, divergent interest between management and ownership? You typically independent directors, um, teaching people to listen, and the policy work, etc. So it's the trustees' job to put that stuff in place. So that's that's how I think trustees should take responsibility for driving basically good family business governance practices. Thank you for that, Christian. Um, we have a question from Daniel, and he said, "Hi, Christian. Good to see you again. Great session, and thank you for sharing." In relation to exit rights, can you share some thoughts on situations where these aren't always in existence and one party to the discussion, given their desire to remain together, does not wish to explore them? Given the importance of them, how could you best take this forward? Yeah, that's, thank you, thank you, Daniel. Nice to see you again. Um, one, one thing is, I think a starting point is education. And, you know, and I was asked sort of this kind of question recently the other day, and I said, well, the starting point is, let's pretend there's not a trust to start, and let's pretend we're just talking about shares in the family business. And then to say, you know, if you're a shareholder in a family business and you talk about exit rights, it's like one, point number one, what you're valuing is shares in a business, you're not valuing the business, right? Point number two is educating people about what's the level of discount involved. And, um, you know, so that discount level could be anywhere between 25 to 40% for minority interests. People don't realise the level of discount involved just where you're talking about shares. Point number three is, you know, if you look at US practice, then um, buyout periods could any, be anywhere between 10 to 20 years. Um, so then you put a trust on top and say, well, actually, if you're a beneficiary of a trust, your position is even weaker than a shareholder. 
into business. So I think education and just sort of making it clear that um, uh, it's important that exit is possible, but it's definitely not going to be attractive. So that's, a, that's one starting point. A second way of attacking this is just, you know, especially with older clients, is that you just sort of show them the examples and the literature which says, you know, if you want business continuity, a mechanism to prune is one of the pathways to getting there. So again, education, selling the benefits of pruning. Um, I've also in the past used the idea of just explaining that you know, some family members see themselves as stewards and some family members see themselves as inheritors. So there's different mindsets and there's a couple of different frameworks around this about thinking about what kind of ownership interest that you've got. You know, and just making the point that, you know, and there's, I've done an article on this in the past, is just making the point that you can't convince somebody who sees themselves as an inheritor to change their mindset and become a steward. So that's the, that's the white, yeah. So education, I think, yeah, is a key, um, is a key part of it, yeah. Daniel's just left a comment. Thank you. I like your idea of educating and breaking down the components of the discussions, make it more palatable. Then we have um, a question from Ruha. He says, Based on your experience in developing the conflicts resolution policy, who should be involved? Well, for developing any um, family policy, you go back to the principles of fair process in decision making, and you um, you really try to have. So the ideal is that you have wide representation from every stakeholder group in the in the family. So um, I often I'm working a lot with sibling groups, so like a good working group would be that you've got to go through the process of educating siblings on what a conflict resolution process is. I use, I use SurveyMonkey a lot. So I would send out a SurveyMonkey and say, here's all the options for designing a, uh, this kind of protocol. What do you think? And then sort of use the results to talk to that. Um, so if I'm working with a group of siblings, then in an ideal world, there might be a representative of the spouses and there might be a representative or two of the younger generation involved in that process. And we've got another question from Veronica. Um, thanks Christian for your informative and insightful presentation. If the purpose of the trust is charitable or philanthropy instead of for profits, what would you say are the key differences between how trustees would operate using the approach slash model you suggested? Oh, um, that's quite a different, that's quite a recalibration. So um, if you have a charitable trust, then you might have family members who are involved in grants committees or you know, on boards, et cetera, of that, of that charity. So I think you still have the same, um, you know, you may still need to develop collaborative skills so that the family members can work jointly together. Um, the charity is the opportunity to learn how to work jointly together. Um, if you have a charity and it owns a family business, then the trustees have the duty to preserve the family business so there's money for charity. 
Um, so I think that all those three circle points and duties of trustees owning um, a family business apply with no modification where the where the beneficiaries are, is it a charitable where it's a charitable trust. We have kind of asking, do you recommend involving the mates of the of the rising generation? And what do you do if one sibling has a mate and the other doesn't, so that the process remains equitable? Yeah, that I think that is tricky. Um, one of the families that I work with, you know, basically you've got to ask the rising generation what their proposal is. Um, one of the families that I worked with picked up this phrase that um, if there's no bring, if sorry, if there's no ring, there's no bring. I think so. Um, that you you need to be you need it sort of runs into the question of what's our onboarding process for in-laws. I'd have to say most of the families that I work with would err on the caution of saying. You know, if if it's not a if it's not a marriage or a de facto relationship, then they shouldn't be involved in um, in, like, in development of governance and things. Thank you so much, Christian, for this insightful afternoon uh, evening for you. We do appreciate you spending time with us today and sharing about trusts and the various ways that people can engage in creating trusts and uh, making them work for their families and family businesses. Can you please share with us how people can get hold of you if they want to engage you further on the issue of trust or family business? Uh, thanks very much, Cece. Um, they can look at my website, which is uh, on the PowerPoints, and I'll share the PowerPoints, and it's, um, uh, or just do a Google search on Family Legacy Asia. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect. Thank you so much, and thank you, everybody, who joined us at this, uh, for this session with Christian. Looking forward to many great sessions and also engaging Christian through our various platforms. Have a good day. Thank you all very much again. Thank you, Cece. Okay, thank you.